there's something about these holidays that they rally together the best and the hardest things about our lives, right? The relational dynamic is, has what, you know, the makings of the things that get our life to the highest extent, that make us the most happy, the most excited, the most grateful, and that remind us of the stuff that is just hard, broken, dysfunctional, and that's real. We can't avoid it. And uh, for, you know, I, I had, went up to, my brother lives in Rancho Cucamonga, so we, we went out, Hillary and I went out there, he and his wife, uh, both Hillary and his wife had to work Black Friday the next day, so we didn't go anywhere else. So we got to be around them, and it was fun, and then we just did the little, like, Skype chat with, like, four other different families, but, you know, it was just the Skype marathon, it seemed like, in the evening, but it was good. Uh, what's interesting is that Paul, in, uh, in, in his letter to the Colossians, he finishes the whole letter talking about relationships because they are so pivotal to all of our lives. My dad told me that there's this, you know, the interesting dynamic in relationships, right? That, that we will be uh, disappointed, that, that relationships will lead to like our greatest areas of disappointment and discouragement than anything else. My dad said that disappointment equals unfulfilled expectations, right? So disappointment is unmet expectations. So your expectation of somebody is here, and then their performance or the outcome of the situation is somewhere down here. And this space in between is, represents like the level of your disappointment. It could be just with a spouse, a family member, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a parent, someone at work. Uh, wherever it could be, it could be your your affinity for any Los Angeles college football team this weekend. You know your your expectation is here, and the performance they come through down here, and there is disappointment. Even at the grocery store, I was at the grocery store recently, and I think that every checkout person should know you don't put bread and bananas in with the canned goods, right? And they don't go in the same bag. Because then there's bruising and mashing of bread and stuff like that. So, there, you know, whatever that is. I have found that in those kind of peripheral relationships, I don't, I don't really hold them, people, to that high of a standard. My expectations are not that high for people that I don't know very well. But the closer you get to me, the higher my expectations get, right? If they're, on your, if they're in your family, on your team, on your staff, then people are starting to represent you and your expectations get higher and thus you let, you're more open to serious disappointment. So who in your life, in my life, gets the brunt of that? Who, who feels that the most? My wife, Hillary, right? So I have, so Hillary, when we, um, when we first got married, you know, I realized this dynamic, that in my own head, I put a lot of pressure on myself. I have high expectations on myself. And so now that we're married, we're together, she inherited that kind of high expectation. And so there was, for our first year of marriage was tough. And I was, I was sharp with her, short with her, critical of her in different ways like that. And, and it, was, uh, it was not fun. But I realized with time and through pain that you can't change. We can't change other people. You can't. If you're trying, stop. You can't change other people. What happens in these relational dynamics are one of three things is going to happen. Either the unlikely situation, but the possible situation, is that that person decides that they want to change something. 
on their own accord. Or you have to renegotiate, refigure out the nature of that relationship. Maybe you have a certain expectation with an aunt that's really difficult, and she can't be in the same, you can't, yeah, that dynamic, you just can't spend as much time around that person, whatever it is. Or maybe it's an employee-employer relationship, and you have to put them in a different position where they are more likely to succeed because in this relationship, it's not working. Or the third option is you change. Your approach changes. Your attitude changes. Your expectations change. So, in this letter, as Paul is finishing this letter to this people like us, in a place like this, in Colossae at that time, not dissimilar to where we are today, he finishes with this idea of relationships. And he's saying, he started this letter talking about the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is above all things, and that he puts his spirit in you, and that's how you can live this life that honors him. The strength and energy and passion from his spirit lives in you. And then you put on Christ, and you put on his, his new life that he gives you. And he, we move through that, and, and now he finishes this letter by saying, and it should play out through your relationships. And he mentions three different categories, these areas of relationship that we're going to talk about. Relationships in the home, relationships at work, and relationships in the world. And we're going to hit those this morning. So first, we're going to talk about the home. But before we do, I want to lay a little foundation because these first few verses can be somewhat controversial in our culture. Because these first few verses have been used by people in an inappropriate way. People that haven't understood the context, haven't understood what Paul is trying to do here, and have leveraged them for their own personal benefit, okay? So that's why these verses, when you hear them at first, you'll be like, oh, I've heard that used inappropriately, or that kind of rubs me the wrong way. So we want to get real clear on what Paul is and isn't saying here. Remember, last week we read from Colossians 3.11, where Paul said, here... In Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. In other words, we're all the same. In Christ, we're all the same. Everyone is on equal playing and on an equal playing field here. That wasn't the case in his day. That wasn't the case in the Roman Empire at the time that he's writing. There are all kinds of different classes and systems. You're trying to work your way up all the time. And there were slaves and free. There's all these things and people didn't associate with certain people. That was the norm. All these different classes, categories, and distinctions. So Paul says, no, no, no. None of those things are applicable in the kingdom of God. In Christ, you're all the same. He says it over and over again. He says it in his letter to the Galatians in 3.28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female even. He just eliminates that distinction too. For you are all one in Christ. So he is unapologetic and being very clear that we're all the same. We are all children of God that he has saved and redeemed and given new life. We are on a level playing field, right? So it's with that foundation that we read this, understanding that no one is in a lesser or higher position and no one is off the hook either. We are all one in Christ. So Colossians 3, verse 18, it says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. And do not be harsh with them. So wives, 
Give respect to your husbands and submit to them as is fitting in the Lord. Now, are there some situations? Is that like a universal thing? Are there some instances where that wouldn't be appropriate, where it wouldn't be fitting in the Lord? If a husband, wife, uh, tries to convince you to go with him on a killing spree, you can probably put your foot down and say, I don't think that this is what God had in mind when he wanted me to respect you and to, and to follow your lead in this, right? That is not what he was saying. But let me tell you this story. A very good friend of mine is, is young, in her 30s, married to, uh, married to a guy who is not a believer. He doesn't share the same faith, doesn't follow Jesus, doesn't come here to church. And so she has a lot of areas in their marriage and in their life where there's this kind of difficult tension because she believes one thing and has strong convictions. And he believes a completely different thing and is kind of on the fence and checking things out and, and gets easily turned off by people that are overly like Christian and weird and aggressive with him. And so he kind of just keeps people at a distance and is, and is watching his wife's life change, but is still a little bit suspicious. So how does this woman, this dear friend of mine, this dear friend of Hillary and mine, how does she, how does she honor her husband, submit to her husband, and in doing so, submit to God? Tricky, right? So in the instance that Graham brought up where we're, we, we give our resources as, as just an offering that God has blessed us, so we give back, she feels that conviction. She wants to give, but her husband says, no, no, we work hard for this money. You are not giving it to that church. I don't know that church. I don't go to that church. I'm sure it's nice and everything. He's, he's cordial about it, but he says, no, I want, you know, it, automatic payment comes into our account. I want to see it and know where everything's going. So she submits to her husband. But you know what else she does? She gets other odd jobs during the week, and she gives all that money to the church. She figured out a way in this instance to both submit to her husband, who doesn't follow what she believes, and honor God in that way. And I am telling you, her husband watches, notices, sees her, and is being affected by her willingness to honor both him and her God. And then Paul says, husbands, love your wives. You need to know something, gentlemen. When, if your wife is respectful and submits to you, it's probably not about you. <laughs> she is honoring and respecting and submitting to God. It is not what we deserve. She is being honoring of her God. She is respecting you out of honor and respect for God. That's the way this works. And so in turn, love her generously. Love her actively. Do not be harsh with her, Paul says. Now for me, this is, this is a tough one because I, for me, kind of my tongue, my harshness with Hillary is a barometer. It's kind of a scale and I can tell how am I doing with God based on Am I harsh with her? And I struggled with this even uh, this past week, even on Thanksgiving, uh, because as we were coming back from my brother's house in Rancho Cucamonga, uh, we went on the 91 freeway. And just as a side note, don't ever drive on the 91 freeway. I mean, if, if you can avoid it, avoid it. Why, would, why did I even do that to begin with? So I'm on the 91 freeway. It's like 10 o'clock at night, and it's, there's traffic. I'm like, really? There's traffic? All these people are trying to just get away from whatever family they were with and get home. And so we get on the freeway, and before I can get over to the carpool lane, boom, traffic backs up. And in an instant, without even really thinking about it, I just 
pulled over across the double yellow into the carpool lane where I thought I could sail. But at least I used my blinker, you know? So I put, I put the left blinker on, I swerved over, I was in the carpool lane, and not within three seconds is there blue and red lights behind me. And I'm like, oh, crud, really? And so he generously escorts me over to the uh, side of the road, and I'm just getting this from my wife. <laughs> Trying to be, like, uh, quiet and not say something, but she's fuming. And I know, because she's right, because, I, I, you know, I just... Sometimes I'm a little bit loose in the turns on that kind of stuff, and I just, uh, without thinking about it, I just do something dumb like that, and I can't. And to make matters worse, I'd, I'd forgotten my wallet. didn't even bring my wallet. I was like, free dinner at my brother's house. Who needs a wallet? So I didn't even have it with me. And, and you don't want to get pulled over by someone who's just gotten, like, apparently ripped away from their family on Thanksgiving to go be a CHP officer. He was not friendly. And so, you know, this is compounding the issue, and then I have my wife here that's starting to just remind me of all the things kind of that, that I have been a little bit um, loose with and how I can't do this kind of stuff anymore and we can't afford it. And so I, I lashed back, and I said something to the effect of, do you think I don't know this? You know, I mean, something very sharp and harsh, and I, and I realized even in that moment, but then later as I was preparing this message, that... <laughs> that that is, that is a, like a, a warning light for me. That something is off in my relationship with God. That maybe I have let kind of the busyness of preparing and different dynamics and family kind of rob me from my sense of connection with God. And so then my, my temper, my whatever, gets shorter and shorter. I lose that peace. And then when something like this goes wrong, I lash out at the person closest to me who is Hillary, who's saying stuff that's true, but I just lose it. Now, here's the thing. Do you think that me being harsh with Hillary makes her want to then just submit and say, okay, well, yeah, all right, you're right, good point. No. (laughs) This is a cyclical pattern. Have you noticed this? When I am harsh, she she just wants to let me know how it is, you know? And then, so the, the, the typical relationships in the world that you see are, are that way. They are conditional. If you, if you would just kind of like shut your mouth and, like, and, and be respectful of me, then we wouldn't have this issue. No. Uh, or if you would just love me better and do better things for me, then I would be more respectful of you. That's the way it works out there. And what Paul is saying is the way it works out there doesn't work with us that we will be the ones to initiate the right attitude, the right action, the right response in a way that's honoring to God. And we will not wait and say someone else needs to change first. We will, not, we will not leverage relationships and try to see all that we can get out of this person and just give them little carrots of love that they need or respect that they want. We will honor this person on equal ground because we're all one in Christ. We will honor each other in a way that is honoring to God. That's what we do. That's who we are. It's not conditional. It's not if then. It's not based on leverage and what we can get. So wives, I have a challenge for you this week. Tell your husband that with God's help, you are gonna follow his lead. If you, can't, if you can't think of something that you've been holding out on and mention to him that you, that you know it 
and that you're sorry. And don't wait for him to change. Tell him that you want to honor God by honoring him. Husbands, I have a challenge for you today. Think of one thing that you can do today or at least this week that is intentional love and action towards your wife. How can you intentionally love her in action? Even if you don't feel like doing it. And then listen to yourself talk. Are you sharp? Are you a little bit harsh? Are you a little bit critical? Now that's Paul talking to husbands and wives. And then he talks to parents in this children dynamic. He says in verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Now, I don't have any children yet. I mean, I was a child, and I, I, I nailed that. Uh, but, I, you know, we have one coming. Graham's is in four weeks. I think ours is in like 10 or something like that. So we're excited about that, but it hasn't yet happened yet. So I did some research this week and learned some stuff. I also thought about one great thing that my parents did, uh, my dad especially. Whenever I got in trouble as a kid, my, my parents were intentional about how they disciplined us. They, they did spank us, but he at least wrote the word consequences <laughs> on the wooden spoon. <laughs> so like, okay, well, that's, that's what I had coming, I guess. No, but he, he wanted to be clear that this was, not, this was not about just punishing, that this is about if I, you know, for, for my behavior, there was a consequence as a father and a son. So he had communicated something to me that this is how this will be, and if this isn't how it is, then this is what happens. You get spanked. And so every time before he spanked, he never spanked us out of anger. He always explained, hey, I hate doing this, but I said that if you behaved this way, that this was going to be the consequence. And I even wrote consequence on the wooden spoon to remind you. <laughs> And so he would spank us that way. It, we, couldn't get, we couldn't get frustrated about it because he always communicated his love and then whooped our behind. But then he would hold us and communicate his love again, and that's how they did it. Now, as I've looked and read about how other teachers and writers and pastors, what they've found, they, they, I identified four key ways that parents tend to discourage their kids. If you're kids, you might get it from that end. If you're parents or you want to be parents one day, you might want to pay attention to these things. I gave them all, I started them all with the letter I, just, you know, for fun. So the first one is we can frustrate our kids by ignoring them. A father or a parent who has no time for his children soon creates within them a deep-seated resentment, and they wonder if they matter, and they're going to look elsewhere for attention if you don't give it to them. The second thing is we indulge them. When you indulge them and give them whatever they want, they become spoiled. Uh, they think that they can have whatever they want. That they're dissatisfied in general in life and, uh, and have a disrespect for authorities who don't give them what they want. The third thing is insulting them. Some parents like to criticize or they're overly sarcastic. I know it comes out of your own pain, our own pain when we do that from how we were raised. But if you insult your kids, they will grow deeply insecure and they will wonder about them and they will get, they will be fragile as adults when they grow up looking for affirmation wherever they can find it. And then the fourth thing is intimidating them. So threats and unfair expectations that crush their spirit and they wonder, can I ever, am I ever enough? 
Am I ever enough? So ask yourselves, parents, ask yourselves these questions. Do I believe that my children are not mine, but rather a gift from God? Am I partnering with God to enable my children to become men and women that he intends for them to be, unique in how he has created them? Do my kids know how delighted I am and excited about who they are? And do they feel like I'm on their side? And then lastly, am I living under the leadership of Jesus in my own life so that my kids have an example and a model to follow? Then to the children, Paul says, we're all children of somebody, right? To the children, Paul says, be obedient to your parents. Disobedience leads to a lack of order, and a lack of order is chaos. Maybe you've been in homes or in environments where it's just complete chaos because the kids have no boundaries, no parameters, and it's just, it's just chaotic in that, in that space, in that home or whatever. They need, we kids need boundaries. And so he's very clear. Children, obey your parents. Even if you think that they're wrong, even if you think that they're wrong, obey your parents. And in doing so, you're not just obeying your parents. You're respecting God. You're obeying God. You're honoring God. So parents, I have a challenge for you this week. Figure out one thing that you do that discourages or frustrates your kid or your kids. And then spend some one-on-one time with each of them and affirm how much you love them uniquely. And then, kids, children of parents, practice right now obedience. When your parent asks you to do something or tells you not to do something, choose to honor both them and God by being obedient, by doing what they say without a fight. So Paul wants to be really clear. To live this life, to, to keep Jesus as supreme, to, to be moved by his spirit, to put on the new life in Christ, it plays out through our relationships. First and foremost, at those intimate relationships at home. You gotta get those right. Otherwise, the ripple effect of broken relationships at home carries into everything else, as many of you know from how you grew up. But then after you address the the situation at home, the relationships at home, then he turns his eye to work. So beginning at at verse 22, we come to some teachings about slaves and masters. Now, we don't have slaves and masters in these days, so we're going to correlate that to bosses and employees, so the kind of the working environment. Uh, But for context, in this day when Paul is writing, almost 50% of the Roman Empire are slaves. I mean, it wasn't just a racial thing or a cultural thing. It was military dominance. Is that people had been, had been captured, had been overcome in some kind of military, and now they are slaves. They are a part of the Roman Empire, but they are oppressed. And so they had limited, if any, rights in this, in this culture at that time. So what Paul is not saying, Paul is not trying to convince his, the church that he's writing to to overthrow the Roman government and say, hey, this isn't right. We, you know, we, need, to, we need to storm out. We need to liberate and whatever else. That, that wasn't his tactic. His tactic was to change people's hearts and attitudes and how they treated other people. And what ended up happening in the Roman Empire was that the whole culture did change as a result of people beginning to see themselves as equal and treating themselves with dignity and respect and love that happened as a result of this church spreading and moving throughout the empire. So 
In verse 21, Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Real practical here. I read an article from Business News. It says, Just because your Facebook access isn't blocked at work doesn't mean no one's paying attention to what you're doing online. While the majority of companies give employees free reign when it comes to the internet, many are careful to pay attention to what their employees are looking at. Right? Just a simple example of saying, are you, are you giving your best at work? Are you honoring your employer with your time? Because if you do, it's your in turn, you're giving God your best. When, when you give your best at work, you are honoring God. What if, what if, you gave your best all the time. Not just when you were working or when certain people were around or in the office that day. What if you did your best all the time? In fact, what if, what if you worshiped at work? What if work became a worshipful act for you? I'm not saying that you're going to invite Jairus to come and lead songs in your cubicle. What I'm saying is, could you view... Could you view your work as an expression of worship, understanding that ultimately, yes, you're, you're supporting and you're serving and you're working for your boss, or if you're in school, you're respecting your teacher and your principal and the people that are in place and authority over you, you're respecting them and treating them in a way that's honoring, just like you're honoring God, because he put those people, he allowed those people to be in the positions that they are. And go on in verse 23, it says, whatever you do, whether at school, whether at work, whether at home, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. In all work, in all relationships, Work as if you're working for God, literally, not in a cheesy way. I'm talking literally. He sees everything. He sees everything. There was um, there's a, a story about a missionary, a true story, where this guy went over to another country. I don't know which country it was, but he's there, and he's working with the people, and he's, he's working with the nationals in that community, and he's trying to get them. To, he's building their economy. He's giving them practical outlets to have meaningful work in that place. But what he learns is they're not used to working in that way at all, and they are very lazy, and they are not putting forth a very good effort. They haven't been trained. They don't have a good work ethic. And so this missionary entrepreneur guy, he's very discouraged. He's, he's trying to communicate, hey, this is for your own good. You know, this will pay dividends. You can't see now, but it's going to be so great. Just keep working. But they won't work if he's not there present with them, which is very frustrating for him. This guy, this is probably about 50 years ago, this guy literally has a glass eye. He had lost his eye when he was younger. He's got a glass eye. So one day, just by chance, it wasn't strategy, just by chance, he had left, awkwardly, his glass eye on the table at the workplace. The people didn't get it. They hadn't seen that kind of a thing before. So they literally thought this was his eye, and they worked like crazy all day. They thought that his eye was on them, and so they kept to the task. So this was great. This worked out conveniently for the entrepreneurial missionary. He has these guys. They're chipping away. They're doing work. And then it lasts for like a few days or up to a week, and he comes back one day, and he finds his glass eye with a hat over it and with people just doing whatever they wanted, right? 
They find a way. People will find a way to be lazy. It's just in our nature, right? But what if, what if you, what if I, what if we understood that even when the boss or the teacher or the parent isn't watching, God is still watching, and it's him ultimately that we're serving anyway, that your boss doesn't have to be a great person that you totally believe in and are committed to. It's, you know, it's not okay, but even if he's corrupt or even if you disagree with him or even if there's different things like that, that doesn't mean that you disrespect or don't work. It means that you remember that you are ultimately serving God. You are ultimately working for him. So if you are an employee or even if you're in a classroom every day, I want to encourage you and challenge you in this way. Imagine that Jesus is an undercover boss at your work this week. You know I like that show, right? So imagine that he's literally undercover in the cubicle across from you. How would you then work? Would it change? If Jesus was in the classroom next to you at a desk, how would that change the way you paid attention or treated the person next to you or treated your teacher? Colossians 4.1 provides a challenge for employers as well. It says, Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. He's saying masters or employers, bosses, owners, CEOs, teachers that dominate the classroom, whatever. Don't think that just because you're in a position of authority that you can do whatever you want, you still must be just. You still must be fair because you have a master in heaven. You ultimately report to God. Are you treating your employees fairly? Are you honoring them? Like we talked about in the kingdom, it's a level playing field. We're all the same. Are you treating people that way with that kind of respect? So my challenge for you, employers, people in leadership, is will you, play, will you pray for your employees by name this week? Every day, will you pray for them by name? And at the end of the week, if you're willing, ask them if they feel like you treat them fairly. It might make for some interesting conversation. So Paul, finishing this letter to the Colossians, he wants us to know that everything he's been talking about plays out through our relationships, first at home, then at work, and then in the world in general. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6 says, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Have you been in an environment, work, school, grocery store, restaurant? I can think of a time in a restaurant when you were having a conversation, let's say, with the server, and, and he or she was just not on their game this, this, this evening, this particular time, and you got a little short with them because they messed up your order, or something went terribly wrong, and, and you were short, you were you even rude, or you let them know how you felt. And then later in the conversation or later in the evening, somehow, maybe they're just, you know, too much information, but they're telling you about someone that just died, like their mom just died or that they just lost a child or that there's some kind of really big deal, this disaster, this hard thing in their life, and you feel like a complete jerk, right? So you don't know the circumstance that they're in, and so you treat them a certain way because you're irritated they didn't do the job right. And then you realize the backstory, and then you wonder, I should, you feel this little bit of conviction, and you're like, this person needs, 
community. I should invite them to church. And you're like, but I can't invite them to church because I will give every believer at my church a bad name after how I treated them 10 minutes ago, right? And so you're in this deal like, I really need to, I really want to reach out. I should reach out to this person, but I've been acting like an idiot, and so I can't because that's dumb. Have you been in that kind of a situation? So you, what Paul is saying here is that in every situation, all the time, let your conversation, let your words always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer anybody, so that people are attracted to the Jesus in you, and you're not turning people off. My challenge for all of us with regards to how we interact with others, outsiders, people that we're not in constant relationship with, is simply this. Is your lifestyle, is your language, are your actions, are they drawing people to to their creator or pushing them away? And are you aware of that? Because, friends, we are a community that, has been, that is attractive in this, in this city, in this place. And we will continue to be inviters and welcome many here. You're going to interact with people this afternoon and all week that need the hope that you have. Are you aware of how your talk, how your attitude is coming off to them? Will God use you to draw people in? Will you be ready and aware of that? intentional about your language, about your attitude, about how you're coming off to other people. So here, here's, the, here's the point, is that our relationship, there is a relationship between all of our relationships. Do you see how that works? The intimate relationships at home connect to the relationships at work, and then there's the relationships with everybody else too. And Paul says, get it right. Get Start with the home. Start with the most intimate relationships here, and let it move into the workplace where you spend a lot of time, and then still be on, your, be on top of things all the time so that your language is honoring, so that it's graceful, so that people are attracted and they feel good being around you and feel encouraged by you because relationships are at the center of our life and you can't keep Jesus ultimate, you can't move in his spirit, and you can't put on your new life in Christ every day if you're not intentional about all these relationships. So where is God speaking to you? That's a lot of stuff that I've given you, but what is he saying to you? We've, we've done what we've done with the music and the message to get to this point that God would speak to you. We believe that he speaks and that he has something for you. Is it your relationships at home that you know that you just need to go and ask forgiveness of somebody and you need to start in a new way? It's a new day. Is it at work where you, you, might, you might focus? You, maybe there's you know, a couple types of people, some types of people are really, really good at home. They focus at home and they just kind of forget everybody else. Other types of people are really good in new relationships. They're smooth in their dynamic, but at home and intimate relationships, they're a mess. Where is it? Where is God speaking to you? Because you need them all. This isn't a, oh, this is a weakness of mind thing. This is a, we, we need all of these relationships. What would he say to you this morning? God, Would you speak to us? We want to honor you in our relationships. We are grateful for the relationships that we have. We want to be people who act in love, who love one another, who submit to one another in a way that honors you, not in a way that's leveraging our own desires or conditional or whatever. Help us to to do that. Give us the strength. Give us the courage to trust you in that. To trust, that, to trust that you will care for us in that. 
that other people certainly will disappoint us, that there will be disappointment in these relationships, but that we won't stop there because you are a big God and you don't stop with us. We will be full of grace all the time in all of these relationships, honoring you as we love and honor others.